This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat in Omaha in caverns deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 699, I feel like there's some kind of anniversary coming up, of the Two-Headed Nerd comic book podcast. I'm your head number one, and my name is Matt Baum. I'm your head number two, the internet's Joe Patrick, and today on the show, Matt and I are getting in touch with our feminine side. No, because nothing says Women's History Month like two dudes talking about women in comics, right? <laughs> I mean, we're doing our best here. In this less macho than usual episode, the Cosmic Longbox once again calls on us to discuss eight classic back issue comics based on a theme. After that, we'll set you up with our must-read picks for next week's new comics. But now, there are Stygian mysteries of the universe man was never meant to understand. So let's try some lady power from our Cosmic Longbox. It's back issue review time in the Ziggurat. March was Women's History Month, so the Cosmic Long Box has us flipping through back issues written and drawn, not written and drawn, but written and or drawn by female creators of the past that paved the way for some of our favorite creators of today. Matt, why don't you get us started with my personal favorite comic genre, fantasy. I knew you'd be excited about this one. It's Elf Quest number one, Fire and Flight from Warp Comics, written by Richard and Wendy Peeney, with art by Wendy Peeney. Here is your solicit. Red Lance is captured by the savage humans tribe who inhabit the Holt Forest with the Wolf Rider tribe of the elves and underground trolls. These humans are worshippers of Gotara, who demands a sacri- who demands a sacrifice from them before the elf can be sacrificed. Skywise and Cutter rescue him and admonish the tribal shaman. In a fury, the humans set fire to the entire forest, which is like a very human thing to do. Force, yeah, <laughs> right. Forcing, Classic us. <laughs> forcing the wolf riders to flee the trolls. Cutter pleads with Greymung, the frivolous troll king, but instead is tricked, and the tribe wanders down a long cave path until they end up in a wide desert. The trolls seal them and the wolf riders out of their cavern, abandoning the elves to their own fate. That was fandom with a little solicit there, so you know, do better, guys. That's all I have to say about that. Or. Give me editing access. I'll fix it. All right. Pretty sure all you got to do is sign up for an account. I see. I tried that. And they're like, great. Thanks. You signed up. You don't have editing access. Like somebody mm-hmm. has to approve you or something. I don't know. I reviewed an Elf Quest comic on this show before, but I've never started at the very beginning. This first issue was released before the Peenies founded their Warp Comics publishing brand. Warp stands for Warp Graphics. Oh, Warp pardon me. Graphics. Warp Graphics stands for Windy and Rich Peeny. Did you know that? I didn't know that. It's cute. Um, I think that's something that we probably learned last time we reviewed ElfQuest, but okay. it's been a, a many years. I thought I would have remembered. It was 2020 the last time we reviewed it, so it wasn't that many years ago. Uh, I mean, Matt, you are you have a drug-addled brain. It's so. true. Late. This was later released as ElfQuest number one in full magazine size with the proper colors because the creators weren't happy with the original printing. It didn't reflect what Wendy calls her ability to 
paint with light, which I tend to agree with. It sounds cheesy, but we'll get there. I mean, pump the brakes, Wendy, but yes. <laughs> I read what is essentially a scanned version of the comic that's available at ElfQuest.com for free, by the way. There's a ton of stuff up there. And I have to say, I've been very dismissive of ElfQuest comics for years. I was wrong. I was completely ignorant and wrong. ElfQuest is a masterpiece of independent comic book creation and storytelling by the sweetest couple in the business. In this first issue, they lay out an origin story for the elves, not just the tribe that we're following, but how elves got to Earth. They introduce several characters, three different races, and they do it with the greatest of ease. Peony's art is, it's beautiful. It's soft, painted, and literally glows on the page. Her character designs are excellent, and the attention to detail, settings, and even the wolves in the book is obviously a labor of love. I want to apologize to Wendy for dismissing her characters as looking childlike in the past. Wendy Peeney's an exceptional artist who, along with her husband, created a rich fantasy world with a plot that they knew where it was going from issue number one, and they did it on their own. The whole time, they had a brief run at Marvel, went back to their own stuff later on. I'm giving this a gigantic buy it. I ended up reading the first four chapters. I'm going to read more. This is great. Um, wow. <laughs> Look at you. I mean, yes, I, I agree with everything you said. I, like, it's it's easy to joke about ElfQuest because ElfQuest, I mean, like, no offense, but look at it. It, it But it is, uh, it is the product of... You're being dismissive uh, when you say that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I get it. But I mean, look, man... Uh, I didn't make the rules. I just live. I just try to live by them. Sure. I mean, like you got to take into account these elves, if you will. They're not elves like we think of. These aren't the tall, yeah, right, sexy right. Tolkien elves. They're closer to something between like a dwarf and maybe a halfling, possibly. Like they created their own characters, and only the elves look that way. Like sure. humans looked at you know like humans and trolls, right? And there's like trolls, trolls and, and or- orcs yeah. or yeah, trolls, I guess. Yes, and you're right. And say what you want about ElfQuest. It's the product of two really strong talents, especially on the part of Wendy uh, and her art and character design. Now, I will say that I, uh, with the exception of Cutter, um, I do kind of have a hard time keeping the elves apart sometimes, but that's just because there's a lot of them, you know? But. I admit, like, I enjoyed myself. I, will I read ElfQuest? Am I going to be a common ElfQuest fan? I doubt it. I'm just, it's just not my, it's not my favorite thing. But this is really well done. It's beautifully drawn. It's beautifully colored. And you can't take anything away from the world building that these two. Yeah accomplished even in just one issue. That's, and that's it, like our biggest problem when we come to these fantasy comics. They're either doing way too much to build the world or they're not doing anything to build the world and just telling snarky jokes. And I think that loses us a lot of times. And this, like, just came out fully formed. Issue one. There you go. Yeah, it's a buy it. It's it's good. All right, enough of these elves. Let's talk about a real man's man talking about rex mason aka metamorpho in the pages of the brave and the bold number 57 from dc comics 
It came out in late 1964, early 1965. So depending on uh, your newsstand, I guess, is, is when it came out. It's written by Bob Haney with art by Ramona Fraden. Here is your solicit courtesy of, I believe this is the DC uh, fandom wiki. So it's really more of a synopsis. Soldier of Fortune Rex Mason is abandoned in an Egyptian pyramid by Java, a revived caveman who acts on behalf of their boss, Tycoon Simon Stagg, and retrieves for him the Orb of Ra. Is it racist Mason to is- say you can just like never trust a caveman? Is that a racial statement? or? <laughs> well, it's- because ra- uh, caveman is Perhaps not a race. It's, it's a just species. stereotypical, I guess. <laughs> Mason is subjected to the rays of a meteor housed within the pyramid and becomes physically transformed into a freakish looking elemental being who can transform his body into any element in the human form. He returns to America and confronts Stag, who keeps him away with the orb of Ra, it's like his kryptonite, and says that he will use his scientific skill to change Mason back to normal again. But this goal is beyond Simon Stag's science. After Java vengefully starts a fire within the mansion, he's just so jealous. Mason uses his powers to rescue his lover, Stag's daughter, Sapphire. Later, she points out that Mason can use his newfound abilities for the cause of good until her father finds a cure. If he ever does. Oof. I mean, look- Spoiler alert. Stag, in fact, does not find a cure no, for doesn't. poor Rex Mason. He doesn't. I would argue Java's kind of a victim here. He's being used. I mean, uh, well, yes, that's true. But also Java is an asshole. Yeah, well, sure. But he's also, a, you know, he's just a simple minded caveman. How can Except, he know? Oh, about right. Yeah, right. He's uh, yeah, he is about as inventions. smart as <laughs> he is about as smart as unfrozen caveman lawyer. He's just an uggo. Uh, and hey, look, if Simon Stagg had cured Rex Mason, we would have been deprived of years worth of adventures starring one of my favorite weirdo superheroes. This comic revels in Silver Age ridiculousness from painting Rex, who is a tomb-raiding mercenary, as some kind of world-famous celebrity, to Simon Stagg, a supposedly legitimate scientist and businessman, rolling with a reanimated caveman and a crew of henchmen that dress head-to-toe in all black, including executioner's masks. Comics, folks. (laughs) Yeah. But Haney's script is a blast to read from start to finish. It's full of exciting moments and a dodgy understanding of chemistry and i think that's putting it i think that that is putting it generously not important (laughs) yeah right come on kid we're trying to learn something there's even a text piece about the physical process of metamorphosis but that's um, really more about butterflies and stuff than it is chemical compounds but at least you can learn something too Ramona Fraden is an artist that's celebrated within the comics industry, and I'm ashamed to say that I've never really read her work before now. Her art in this issue is absolutely wonderful, sort of a cross between the comedic teen romance style of an Archie comic with Silver Age superhero action. The Brave and the Bold 57 was an absolute treat, and I'll definitely be seeking out more of Fraden's work in the future. Given this one, a buy it. I loved it. I feel like... When we review silver and golden age stuff, sometimes I have to put my myself in a mindset, even with like super famous creators from the time when we're looking at it and just be like, okay, they were doing what they were doing the hard way and you got to give them the benefit of the doubt. Not Fraden. This comic looks kick ass. Like the art is fantastic. And yeah, it's so good. Metamorpho is such a weirdo. I love the character too. 
But like, if you go back and look at this first metamorpho and they pitch this where it's like, yeah, he's got like a mummy head and he's like orange and red and blue. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> It's not wild that they did it in comic form because the Brave and the Bold is the place to do this. Let's just do something weird and see if it sells. It is wild that people glommed onto this and went, give me more of that metamorpho guy. That is weird. I love it. Because is it good? Ah, I don't know. The art's very good. Is the idea? Yeah, it's good. The art's very good. But like the story is pretty dumb. <laughs> it's pretty stupid. Well, but sure, man, it came out in 1964. No, so, I yeah. know that. And I and lots of stuff like that. But like the stretch here that they're going to create this character and the steps they take to get him where he needs to be. It's a lot. You got to admit when they had other stories where like he was stranded on an island and got really good with a bow and arrow or he's an alien that came to Earth. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm just saying. They tried really like, hard. It paid you know, off. Metamorpho is still around, so it worked. I'm giving it a buy it as well. The art was so much better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, it's, it's kick-ass. Uh, you know, it makes me, like, it does make me wonder things like uh, uh, revelations like, oh, the pharaoh decided to keep the meteor in his basement. Right. I mean, like, and that's just. It's like, but you know what the meteor does to people, right? Surely, <laughs> surely something happened to somebody. Well, maybe they want to do some Indiana you. Jones shit where they like lower somebody towards it and it freaks them out. You know, I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, the fair, like, didn't anybody, didn't anybody change, change into an element man when they went near the meteor in Pharaoh times? I, like Jeff Johns, Jeff Johns actually brought back Acton as a character in JSA. Prior leading up to um, leading up to the return of Hawkman, where Jay Garrick gets stuck in the past and he meets Prince Khufu and Naboo and Black Adam. I remember this. And Vandal Savage had Acton as his slave and he was a metamorpho. Oh, my God. So, yeah. So other people did get changed. Yes. There you go. I mean, they might not have thought of it back in the 60s, but like, come on. Like, yeah. Why would it happen to one guy and not, right. you know, exactly. Or any most people. Yeah. Like lots of people dialed hero or horror on the dial and terrible shit happened to him. So why wouldn't it be the same with something like this? You know, right, right. <laughs> and it's like, OK, so that leads me to my second question. If you take a chunk of the rock and form it into a scepter that you can then use to do whatever. Doesn't the scepter have enough juice in it to transform people too? Apparently not. I don't get it. I think it's just it's just a little bit of it. There are a lot. What I'm saying is there are a lot of unanswered questions. Sure. The scepter appears to just light up, and people go, "Whoa! I'm not. I don't want any part of that." Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because <laughs> it never really does anything. With it. <laughs> no, not really. I don't know. From ancient Egypt, we move to the lost city of Atlantis. But maybe not the way you're thinking of. In Arion, Lord of Atlantis, number one from DC, 1982. It's written by Paul Kupperberg with art by Jan Dersima. Here is your sort of a setup that I had to write because there's a lot going on here, folks. <laughs> Arion is trapped in his <sighs> astral form on a planet neighboring Earth called Anulius. That will be the easiest proper noun you will have to say in this comic book by the way <laughs> where his cosmic maybe goddess mother is battling his teacher and master Kalkulha to prevent Arian from returning to Atlantis meanwhile 
Arion's body on Earth is possessed by his nemesis, Garn Denuf, who is in battle with his friend. I'm I'm already tired. I know. <laughs> who's in battle with his friend, the swordsman, Wind, spelled W-Y-Y-N-D-E. Who I'm has, sorry, that's pronounced windy. <laughs> is it windy? Yeah. <laughs> who has no choice but to mortally wound Arion's body to vanquish the evil spirit of Garn. If it sounds like this can't possibly be the beginning of the story, it's because it's not. This story picks up from the running backup story in the pages of Warlord 62, where it was seven issues into this sword and sorcery madness before we got to issue one. Joe and I tend to throw a fit when we read a one-shot or special issue labeled number one that is obviously part of another story. In this case... Like I mentioned, Arian number one picks up with the eighth part of the story that left me absolutely bewildered as to what was happening. Mom was a star, I think. There's a Native American samurai, a bad guy with two fuzzy spider legs, and so many names that are impossible to pronounce. Cholo, Dutula, and Chahan, to name a few. If it wasn't for the completely psychedelic art by Dusima, I would have put this down. But the spread pages were just gorgeous works of cosmic art that would be perfectly at home, airbrushed on any conversion van. I don't know what happened in this comic or who had the balls to label this issue number one, but you cannot argue that Arion is one wild ride. The art is so good. I'm giving this a buy it. It, it's just like, it's too nuts to say no to. <laughs> like, after I read this, I was talking to Toots on our Discord, and he's like, yeah, that started in Warlord. And I went, you know what? I'm going to go see where, how the hell we got here. <laughs> I'm curious. And I heard it's better than Warlord even. So That is what he said. I saw him, yeah. I saw him say that. I don't, I don't know, man. I, I can't in good conscience give up by it to a thing, to a, a chapter that's part eight of an ongoing story. <laughs> no, uh, I just can't give the buy it to De- to Decima's art. Let's, uh, let's the be art real is here. great. Yeah. The art is great, uh, and uh, you know Jan Dersima Der- or Dersima. It's just it's just so strange. It's so strange, but it's fun. Yeah, it's fun, and it's like, how do these? Why does this guy look like a samurai? This is like a billion years ago. But they call well, him, I don't know. They call him Red Man, and he's got like. Native American stuff going on too. Yeah, like, <laughs> it's but wild. he's dressed in like Japanese. Well, he hangs out with an Asian who's obviously an Asian woman, and a bunch of the like guards in the temple are all Asian dudes. So maybe it's just a very multicultural Atlantis. I don't know. I guess. Well, no, <laughs> I guess. that's not what I mean. I mean, like, considering the time period, these cultures don't exist. And so oh, says you, this time was lost to man in history, Joe. So we don't know. Okay. No, I mean, <laughs> these are the times of high adventure. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean like Japan as a concept does not exist. America, even, even uh, North America prior to colonization as a concept does not exist. These people are like, it's probably still Pangea for all we know. One large lumped together mass but we have a lot of trappings that you can look at and 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 assign to like modern day for sure and i suppose that's just that's how it's got it that's how it's gonna be when it's 
Except for the modern bad guy, creators. The bad guy and the spider legs. That is a choice. He's got these uh, two well, you little know, furry legs with weird little like V bug toes. <laughs> I don't know what was going on there. Hey, man. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes a guy needs to get freaky. He's bad news. Uh, the- he is bad news. Uh, the art is the art is very very good. Um, a, a small small nitpick, and it's really not even fair to. Um, oh God! I just saw the spider legs again. <laughs> uh, for like, if you if you just glance past it, they look like pants, but they are not pants. They are not pants, and he's nude. He's not wearing any <laughs> he's pants. Naked Joe. from the waist down, right? He's <laughs> yeah, naked, like naked. full on Donald Duck nude. He is butt naked. Arian's magic. Um, there's a really cool like symbol in the O on the cover in the O of the um, logo on the cover. Yeah. And I always thought that that was like what it looked like when Arian cast spells because George Perez drew it all the way through crisis on infinite earth. That's how George Perez drew Arian casting spells with that weird, like multiple triangle thing. Okay. And Jan Dersima doesn't do it. Not once. <laughs> In this comic. Well, now keep in mind, she created this character. She co-created. I'm Arion just saying, man, I like that look. I think it's a cool P- look. Though. With Culperberg. So guess what? Her shit counts. They added stuff later. I'm not sure. saying it doesn't count. I'm just saying I like that look is all. Fair enough. Uh, no, I'm giving this a skimmit, a strong skimmit, because it's just like, look, it's part eight. Come on. But it's wild, man. And the art is great. Jandersima, very, very talented. And again, Somebody whose name is not necessarily a household name among comic fans. Yeah. She's, she's done a lot of work, a lot of work, but people don't really talk about her much. Let's talk about a brand new character in a sort of familiar costume in Claws of the Cat, number one from Marvel Comics, the year 1972. This is written by Linda Fight, F-I-T-E. With art by Marie Severin and Wally Wood, here is your uh, solicit. This is courtesy of Marvel.com. The cat stalks at night. In her first Marvel Universe appearance, we learn the origin of Greer Grant and her unusual role in an experiment. Period. (laughs) Enter dot dot dot. The cat. This is back when they were just like, I got an idea for a comic. And they went, don't tell me anymore. Just do it. <laughs> right. Like, okay. <laughs> I mean, this was probably written for when the issue got added to Marvel. Unlimited. Sure. So it's uh, like they, it's like my comic shop.com. They rattle off a couple of sentences. It's not really meant to be. No, I mean, I get brief, it. I just mean description. the creators didn't even have time to come up with a solicit back then. They were oh just like, yeah. I mean, I'm not even sure. <laughs> I'm not even sure how it worked back then. Right. Stan showed up around. and screamed comics and they threw him at him. Yeah, basically. right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Unlike Ramona Fraden, I've been reading Marie Severin's work for nearly my entire life. Marie joined Marvel in 1964 and spent decades drawing everything from Strange Tales, where she co-created the Living Tribunal to Marvel's comedy series, Not Brand Eck, to several titles in Marvel's Star Comics imprint, including my beloved Muppet Babies. Here, she helps introduce a new character to the Marvel Universe, one that will end up becoming not one, but two different Marvel icons. That's a, that's a teaser, kids. There you go. Linda Fight's script is very... Very convoluted. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Involving a tragic romance, the struggle for women's equality, and a plot for world domination hatched by a fitness-obsessed germaphobe. 
It's just a lot of words yeah. in that sense that don't go together. Uh, it is kind of, it's just, it's kind of a lot to be honest, but Severin's art is really great with the help of fellow comic legend, Wally Wood. I'm giving the cat number one, a skim it because the plot is it's bonkers, man. It like, it's so, it's so weird. Yeah. But Severin's and this issue's contributions to the Marvel universe shouldn't be forgotten. Those two Marvel icons I mentioned earlier. Greer Nelson would be transformed into Tigra in the pages of Giant Size Creatures number one in 1974, and Patsy Walker takes up Greer's old costume and gear to become Hellcat in Avengers 144 in 1976. And they wouldn't exist without the cat number one. Without the cat, baby. I I don't know, and there's nothing written about it. I googled it a little bit to see if I could find anything, but I almost wonder if they wrote this and they're like, look. We're not doing a romance comic. We're doing an empowered female comic. She's a feminist and she's fighting for women's rights. Like you got to put some romance thing in there or women won't read it. You got to do it. And they went fine. <laughs> and just I mean, maybe it in there. <laughs> she meant like, look, and not to generalize, but if we're think if we're, if we're talking about comics still being primarily viewed as a form of entertainment geared towards children in the early seventies, then yeah, maybe Linda fight who, you know, is a woman said, yeah, like little girls like romance. Yeah. I want girls. I want girls to read this comic. I want them to feel empowered, but also hear some romance. Or the so. dudes told her to do that. I don't know. One of the two. Or the dudes told her to do <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. Because it could be. Like, that could it, be. It's just a romance part is so just stuck in this book. It barely makes any sense. <laughs> yeah. Like, all right, whatever. <laughs> the art is very good. But I think when you put Severin and Wally Wood together, you're just going to have, I mean, yeah, okay. It's really right. I mean, come on. That's your masterpiece stuff. So I'm going to give it a skim as well. It seems like a half thought out idea that became two better (laughs) ideas later on. Okay. Let's get out of the seventies and into the eighties with beauty and the beast. Number one from Marvel was 1985. It's written by Anna Senti with art by Don Perlin. Here is your setup. I had to write this one because uh, there's a lot going on here, too. Anna Senti is one of my <laughs> favorite Daredevil writers of the 80s, but I never read her earlier Marvel work. Previous to this miniseries, she had written three issues of Spider-Woman, Volume 1, numbers 47 through 50, and an issue of Doctor Strange and one of Star Wars, but this Beauty and the Beast miniseries was really her first Marvel book as head writer. The story takes place right after Dazzler, the movie graphic novel, where Dazzler was outed as a mutant, Allison has fallen on hard times, and a slimy manager has her pump full of drugs with the promise of her making a comeback in the underground theater scene. Porn. Ooh, that means porn. (laughs) Luckily, Hank McCoy is in town visiting his famous buddy, Wonder Man, and he can't help but falling for a down-and-out Dazzler in need of a hero. This story is a wild romp through early 80s Hollywood. Nascenti takes themes of mutant racism to a level of mutant exploitation that I don't think had been approached in X-Comics of the time yet. It feels like a story of a young actress getting lost in the Hollywood drug scene and like ending up in porn. Nascenti's dialogue is very 80s. Hank McCoy is still very much the bouncing blue beast. Not so much the brainy character we know at all. but. Her story hits all the beats of a superstar in decline with vultures looking to take her for whatever she has left. Perlin's art is 
almost the stuff of a romance comic here. His Dazzler looks desperate and beautiful, and he uses these colors to wash her out and make her look like this damsel in distress. <laughs> How could Hank not fall in love? He's great with Beast acrobatics, although when you put Beast in blue undies the way he draws him, he looks completely nude. Makes him look naked. <laughs> yeah. Like other, Makes him look naked. Even Jack Kirby was like careful enough to draw underpants. These are hard. Well, Jack Kirby didn't underpants. design furry beast, but yeah, I suppose. Uh, yeah. The, they were two different shades of blue. No, when that's they, true. When they introduced yeah. the, when they turned him from after furry beast turned from gray to blue, his trunks were a different shade of blue yeah, from his hair like in the defenders. He had like, Dark blue hair, light blue undies. So you can see what's going right. on. <laughs> right. Right. It's not hard. <laughs> yeah. You can see Nascenti bringing her more realistic themes of misogyny, victimization, and drug use to the story. And while it's definitely an artifact of the 80s, the themes hold up really well. There is some silliness here. Like, how do we get Beast of Hollywood? I don't know. He's going to visit Simon. And apparently he walked there. Like the episode. It does look like it, he walked it there. It opens yeah. with he him just... like standing by the Hollywood sign. I have done the hike to the Hollywood sign. You know how you get to the Hollywood sign? From Hollywood. You don't come over the hill. <laughs> right? Well, not if you're the beast. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I'm going to give this a buy it. It was actually like kind of hard hitting and gritty. Yeah. And it's like what Nascenti would go on to do and do really well that I loved in Daredevil. There are so many things to love about this comic book. <laughs> I mean, yes, uh, not to take anything away from the story, which is very, like, it's very poignant. Yeah, she's doing a thing. It, it's just, it's, but it's also, there's just so, there's so much to laugh at. Yeah. Uh, oh, like, kick ass Bill Sienkiewicz cover, by the way. The covers are awesome. Man, uh, Bill Sienkiewicz does all four covers, I yeah. believe, for this, for the series. Um, it's nice of Hank in this later scene to actually put on human clothes because, uh, but no shoes. Because he is wearing the swingingest 70s uh, Power Man yellow silk shirt unbuttoned all the way down to his navel. Yeah. And like very loose fitting. They're out on the town, baby. Come on. I get it. I, like, I had to double check what year this came out. Um, also, this horse guy makes me very uncomfortable. He's very off putting. He's bad news. He's, he's, he's just he's the dealer guy. Yeah. He's supposed to be. A he's just very upsetting to look at. Uh Oh, and also uh, everybody in this comic talks to themselves literally nonstop the entire time. I mean, again, higher time. That's Marvel in the eighties though. You've, you've called me out for that, but like that's, yeah, nobody has a thought that you don't get to hear. (laughs) Uh, But my favorite thing in the issue was perhaps Dr. Doom getting served for back child support. Like he was a deadbeat dad (laughs) at the beginning of the comic. (laughs) I thought this was really good. It's a buy it for me. The art, you know, I like Don Perlin. He's he's not the flashiest artist. He's not the most well-known artist. No. But like you said, like his art is very dynamic. His action scenes are great. His beast jumping around and, and doing tricks is really fun. Yeah. Just work on your fashion sense, my guy. That's all I'm asking. It's the 80s, baby. The 80s. Come on, man. It was the 80s. It was the 80s. And again, the horseman. Why? Ooh, Why do we got Yeah, it? he was gross. I don't like him. Let's stick to Marvel's mean streets in our next review. It's Power Man and Iron Fist number 61. This is from 1980. 
It's written by Joe Duffy with art by Carrie Gamil or Gamil. Sorry, Carrie, again, a name I've struggled to pronounce correctly for about 40 years. Here is your solicit courtesy of, uh, where did I get this from? I think this, uh, this came from comic shop, uh, mycomicshop.com. Big Ben, arrival from Luke Cage's past, comes crashing through the door, assassins hot on his heels, seeking his old sparring partner's help. Meanwhile, a misunderstanding sets Iron Fist against another old friend of Power Man's, the super fast Thunderbolt. Joe Duffy is a name that will be familiar to Marvel fans of a certain age. Her work as writer and editor was all over the Marvel bullpen from the late 70s through the late 80s. And if you ever looked at a, a bullpen bulletins page during that time, Joe Duffy, Joe Duffy, Joe Duffy. You oh, see yeah. your name all, of the, all, oh, yeah. all the time. Uh, she worked on stuff like the English adaptation of Akira that Marvel put out in the 80s. I did not know that. She had a run on Star Wars, and she even wrote Matt's favorite, Fallen Angels, oh. starring a boy and his lobsters. Hell yeah. And they weren't just lobsters. They were telepathic. But her most celebrated run was that of Power Man and Iron Fist, issues 56 through 84, which was known for its kind of lighthearted tone during a time when Marvel was pushing darker stories. See also the cat. This issue introduces new series artist Carrie Gamel to the title just in time for an old rival turned friend of Luke's to bring danger to his front door. Duffy's story is full of fun twists and turns as Iron Fist and Thunderbolt try to find out what happened to Luke and if Luke could possibly be working with the nefarious Magia. I don't believe it for a second. No way. Now, I've seen Thunderbolt in the Marvel handbook and probably in the background of stories here and there. But this was the first time I ever actually read a comic starring the character. He's a fun twist on the super speedster concept. No spoilers for me there. Duffy gets extra points from me for including Man Mountain Marco. A ridiculous, <laughs> like, D-list is generous. He's like a Z-list Marvel thug that I really love for some dumb reason. He's just like... <laughs> really? You love him? I don't, yeah, Man Mountain Marco, like, I don't, like... He's just some lot of, dude. I know. I don't have a lot invested in the character of Man Mountain Marco, but whenever they trot out Man, Martin, Man Mountain Marco again, wearing his, like... His shirt unbuttoned all the way down to his navel, but bearing his hairy chest. And he's just some guy that works for mobs. He's he just some he's, he goomba. He's way sexier than he is. I'll say that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he just happens to have superpowers. I, I just love him. Terry Gamble is a fantastic artist and he does really strong work here, though you can tell that he's still coming into his own style in 1980. My experience with the Power Man and Iron Fist series is sorely lacking, but I loved this issue. And I can see why Duffy's run is so well regarded. I'm giving this a buy it. It's really good. This is really good. And I think Gamble looks fantastic here. Personally, there's some panel like that first panel, the very first page with the graveyard yeah. and everything. That's straight out of like old school EC. That is bad ass. Yeah. It's just that like he evolves over time. And by right. the time he's drawing, uh, by the time he's drawing like Marvel team up a few years later or, or Superman in the, in the mid eighties, uh, his style it, is kind of settled into what I recognize as Carrie Gamble. Fair enough. It, I don't know is, enough of still, his stuff. So you can still see some of that here. It's just that he's, you know, he's evolving. Yeah. I mean, his shading is really good. And I think it's tough yeah. when you're doing comics like this, where like you said, the majority of the characters are not in costumes aside from right. Power Man, Iron Fist and Thunderbolt, who's 
I've never heard of. <laughs> I just went, yeah. I just rolled with it. Something happens in Thunderbolt in the end, and I was like, oh shit. I wonder if Thunderbolt gets over that. Maybe I should read this. <laughs> like, yeah, I right. Say, I, like, I don't know. I have no idea what like happens that, to Thunderbolt. Yeah. I don't know. So maybe I'll check it out. I don't know. I have read a lot of Power Man and Iron Fist. I think Joe Duffy, I've read very spotty just here and there of her run. I need to sit down and read those because I legit love these comics. I'm giving it a buy it as well. Joe Duffy, another name, should be a household name. I mean, she's amazing. And I mean, I agree. Time. Uh, and like, just to put it in perspective, the person that succeeds uh, Joe Duffy as like the longtime writer of Power Man and Iron Fist all the way up through its end is Kurt Busiek. Yeah. And amongst fans, this run is considered better yeah. than Kurt Busiek's run. And one thing, and I don't know, I can't speak to, there just isn't a lot of women working in the industry at this point, but it seems like to give someone like Joe Duffy, to give someone like Joe Duffy a book like this, that is all dudes. It's all dudes. There is no lady power whatsoever. There's no romance. I mean, Misty and Colleen are here for They're a brief here, moment. But there's no bullshit. This is just like street level action. Go tell the story. That's ballsy. I mean, we were just talking about a few years earlier with the cat. We had to have a romance in there and whatnot. And she she was all hot and sick. This is all boys beating up boys. I loved it. I'm giving it a bye. I mean, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to like. I don't know what to what that says about anything if it says anything at all. But you are right. To, like, there's there's this is a very macho comic. Yeah. Uh, don't get confused though, because if you go back uh, through Joe Duffy's oeuvre early enough, she will be credited as Mary Joe Duffy. Oh. And then at some point, she drops the Mary and just goes by Joe. Right on. Let's stick with our movie mas macho theme and talk about Power Pack, Volume 1, number 15. Yes. Nothing says macho like Power Pack. <laughs> it's from Marvel, 1985. It's written by Luis Weezy Simonson with art by June Brigman. Here is your setup. Beta Ray Bill and the Asgardians are leaving town and the Power Pack wants to see them off. Meanwhile, the boogeyman knows the pack's secret identities and he's stalking them and plotting to kidnap one of them to prove to the public they're mutants. They're not. Julia has been accused of cheating on a math test, even though she was just passing a note with answers for a friend and is contemplating running away to Asgard rather than tell her parents. Like you do. I mean, she's a kid. You can freak out yeah. about this. Julie's like one of the- Look, if you knew Asgardians, you'd want to run away to Asgard well, too. But like Julie is like legit sweetheart, brainiac kid. She like, she's the sweetest of the group. The little one is like very sweet, but she's tiny. Julie is She's like, a scrapper. Yeah. Yeah. Julie is yeah. the sweetest. And she's just like, yeah. I want to go to college. And now they're going to know I'm a cheater and I'm never going to get married and I'm never going to get a job. And I'm like, I'm just, I should just run away. You know, kids do. <laughs> it happens. Yeah, for sure. We talked about one other comic book with two women on the creative team, and it's safe to say there aren't a lot more out there in the 70s and 80s. It's rare at the very least. It's not an easy fact check either, so lay it on me if I'm wrong and there's a bunch we missed. I don't know. June Brigman co-created and drew the first 17 issues of Power Pack alongside Louise Simonson, who not only wrote 40 issues of this, but she also colored issue 18. Hey. Yeah. Power Pack That's was, not its issue, though. Power Pack is a team of kids, but the story did not write down to a younger audience at all. Simonson's scripts were firmly set in the MCU, with the pack even crossing over into events like the Mutant Massacre. 
I picked this issue because it featured several Asgardians, and Walt Simonson, husband of Wheezy, was writing Thor at the time. I was hoping there'd be a little crossover. I'm not sure why the Asgardians are in New York and getting ready to leave. It does have something to do with Walt Simonson's Thor, but I could not place the issue timing to figure it out. That said, we get a really well-written story with convincing 80s kid dialogue that actually has a very sweet message and shows how sweet this team of kids can be even to their enemies. The art is very solid, even manages to make a ridiculous threat like the pudgy boogeyman. Look Boy, the boogeyman is dumb. Boy, <laughs> is he dumb. I'm giving this a buy it. Like every time I read a Power Pack comic, when I was young, the only reason I had Power Pack comics is because they came in a three pack and I wanted that Wolverine comic. That was yeah, like, you, you wanted know, the ones on the front, front and the back, not right, the one in the middle. Or whatever. Or I picked up the one that was a Mutant Massacre tie-in. And every time I, re- I revisit these, they're very, very good. <laughs> they really are. I'm, I'm looking at it again, and I'm trying to figure out, because Beta Ray Bill is here. Yeah. So, so this would have been the time when Beta Ray Bill was on Earth, and like Thor was out of the picture. Beta Ray Bill was acting as Thor on Earth. So it's definitely during the Simonson run. I just couldn't pinpoint where. I can't. In the yeah, I'm not sure is. why. Yeah, I'm not sure what they're doing here. Uh, but I'll tell you what. I'd read a whole comic book about Volstag bumming around New York as a tourist. Yeah, man. <laughs> Eating hot dogs and wearing the I Love New York t-shirt. Yeah. Like that's that's just like fills my heart full of joy. Uh, look, I love Power Pack. I love it. I I had a couple issues as a kid. Not not a ton of them by any means, but. They were by this same creative team. They were early on in the run, pre-issue 10, I think. One of them uh, dealt with this guy. Oh, Cloak and Dagger were in it. And, uh, you know, there was all this stuff about, like, Cloak and Dagger and how they got their power from drugs. This is before Marvel made up their mind about what Cloak and Dagger really were. I'm not even sure if they still got their powers from drugs or if they're mutants that got their powers kickstarted by drugs or what. I don't know. Yeah, a little bit of both. But back in the back in after their introduction, Cloak and Dagger, like they were experimented on by like by drugs. They were looking for a fix and they got turned into Cloak and Dagger. Like the kids are in love with them, especially Dagger, who the who um Katie especially like kind of idolizes as this like beautiful, you know, angelic dancer type. And um it's a great issue because um there's all the stuff about drug use and and things like that but jack mass master the little brother accidentally kills a dude yeah and it talks about uh life and free will because that guy is trying to enslave dragon man <laughs> yeah the louis simonson was out here Telling morality plays with like yeah, every dude. issue of this and doing it through the eyes of kids too. So it's like the and kids look, I, were the ones who were picking up. Like in this one, in this issue, Volstag and uh, Hogan are like, well, let's kill the boogeyman. He knows who you guys are. Let's kill him. We can't have that. And they were like, hold right. up. He really didn't do anything wrong. Like he was part of this invention. Like he was working on this invention that my dad invented. He was going to turn into a weapon for the government. That's just his job. The invention exploded because we blew it up. He's mad at us because he lost his job. You know, like, I get it. I get why he's mad. And the Warriors 3 were like, all right, I guess he can live. (laughs) Yeah. They're going to straight murder the guy. (laughs) Like, I I can't speak to the later issues. You know, I know that eventually we get, like, cosmic beings that look like Whoopi Goldberg. And I don't, like, 
I don't know. I don't want to talk about it. Did you just That's a different- really insult Whoopi Goldberg? No, I'm saying there's later on there is a character that's introduced and uh, the character is like this cosmic being that oh, Power Pack meets. Sorry, I thought you were talking the about the chameleons. I was like, are you calling No, Wood not Wood the chameleons. No, there no, and the artist who I think was John Bogdanov, like this character is looks like Whoopi Goldberg. Like it's not a joke. And but these early issues by Brigman and Simonson are so good this one is great it presents like you said it presents these issues through the eyes of children so it's these serious topics that don't talk down and but they still present them in a way that's like hey look look kids you know let's talk about this let's talk about right death let's talk about drugs let's talk about death and they were great at it and june brigman is a phenomenal artist she's really good yeah yeah i love this art uh, this is a buy it for me. I, I love this early run of power pack. Boogeyman, though. It's just really I mean, they were using Boogeyman to tell a certain story. I get it, buddy. And that dumb. story was like how to forgive someone that is not necessarily evil. I get it. I get it. You know, I read confused. the comic. Yeah. I, I, like it was touching. And it's not like the boogeyman's yes. around a lot after this. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess that's true. Yeah, I think the puma kills him in the pages of Gang War and Spider-Man, right? <laughs> right, yeah. While we're talking about serious issues, let's move on to my final review, which is Wonder Woman 46. This is Wonder Woman Volume 2, number 46. It's from DC Comics. The year was 1990. It's written by George Perez and Mindy Newell with art by Jill Thompson. You recognize that name, I'm sure. Here is your solicit again, courtesy of, and you know what? I wrote this. Diana takes on more of a support role as her teenaged friend, Vanessa Capitellis, deals with the tragic loss of a friend and classmate to suicide. Mindy Newell became the first credited woman to write Wonder Woman's adventures in an ongoing capacity in the 80s. Took that long. Shameful. <laughs> you may recall that we talked about Newell's work on the Lois Lane miniseries from 1986 in a previous Cosmic Longbox. She joined George Perez's Wonder Woman title as co-writer for a year-long run starting in 1989, which gave us chalk drawings, this issue, a story that you might not expect to find in a mainstream superhero title. As I said earlier, Wonder Woman takes a backseat here as the story focuses on the grief of Vanessa Capitella's teen daughter of Diana's best friend. Vanessa is struggling to make sense of her friend Lucy's recent suicide, retreating inward and lashing out at friends, loved ones, and teachers alike. Perez and Newell's script deals with a very difficult topic with incredible care and thoughtfulness. There are no easy answers to be found. There's no magical like solution at the end where everybody's okay. The story jumps between the past and the present in order to paint a picture or a chalk drawing, if you will, of Vanessa and Lucy's complicated friendship. The art is by a young Jill Thompson who would obviously go on to be the beloved artist of books like Sandman, Scary Godmother, and Beasts of Burden. Her work here is full of emotion and heart. And you can see hints of the superstar she'll eventually become in her pencils in this issue. Wonder Woman 46 hit me like a ton of bricks. I wasn't planning on, I wasn't planning on reviewing this issue. 
I was going to pick a different Jill Thompson comic. Matt actually suggested suggested this. I stuck with it, and I'm glad I did. I'm giving this a huge buy it. This is by no means some of the, you know, this is early Jill Thompson. I'll say that. And yeah, but you can see her here, though. You can definitely see her here. Yeah, you can see her. Yeah. But I will say, like, if just glancing at this, it looks so much like a 90s Vertigo book. Like so much more than it like does a, Vertigo book. a yeah. Wonder Woman book. And I think that was done very consciously because of the story that they're telling here. Because this is not your average Wonder Woman story by any means. It's about suicide. And we ultimately learn that like, yeah, superpowers are great, but there's things that we can't fix by smashing them. Like there are things that are just going to be broken and they will never be better. And I don't feel like enough comics take a break out of their, you know, vampire Joker meets robot Joker versus demon Batman story to go, Hey, every once in a while we have these down to earth, <laughs> you know, like stories like this. And it, right. they handle suicide better than a lot of TV shows, really well-written TV shows do. This is excellent. It's a massive I mean, buy it. It is important to know. It's important to, it can't be overstated that like this comic book does not try to solve any problems. No, that's, and that's not what it's here. This for. is about dealing with grief right. and living in that grief, even after you close the book. Right. And that's, I think that's why it's so good. Cause it's not trying to teach you a lesson or make you feel better or realize that. Yeah. Suicide's not the answer. It's just, Hey, suicide's complicated and it's messy. It leaves a horrible amount of wreckage. It, behind it this is a really complex situation and they use wonder woman to tell that story it's amazing, amazing. And i also think it's worth pointing out that in the uh, late 80s early 1990s teen suicide was an epidemic yeah it was huge at like um, you can look it up there's it, it was a huge hot button topic um the reason jill thompson's art looks so much like it feels out of vertigo is that not too long from this point she will be drawing sandman yeah starting with issue 40 yeah i mean like that's what um, i looked at when i saw this i was like god this yeah. looks just like a sandman comic <laughs> yeah uh, in fact she is she draws the very first sandman issue to be labeled vertigo oh really issue 40 issue 47 okay yeah Before the Cosmic Long Box releases us from our cursed mission, and you know it's bad because it's cursed, not cursed. That's right. We need to pick one of these comics to enter the THN private collection, and we need to figure out which one of these female creators we think made the biggest contribution to comics history. Matt, you're up. I mean, I gotta pick this Wonder Woman comic, right? I have yeah. to. I mean, it's just, look, all these all these creators are great, and some of them are great artists and great writers, but the way this was handled, it, it's just, it's an amazing comic book. And it really is. It's something special. It's also from, like, I don't know how well celebrated this run of Wonder Woman is. I know it's got a cult following, and people really like it, but I don't think this run of Wonder Woman gets enough attention. It's wild, and it's wooly, <laughs> but there's a lot yeah. of really incredible, like, people that worked on it and work that came out of it. Yes, I agree with you. Um, my pick for the permanent collection is this Wonder Woman issue just because it was so, it was so unexpected. The thoughtfulness uh, with which Perez and Newell and Thompson deal with this topic is incredible. 
you talk about the run and I'll, I'll tell you this. I've, I've not read a lot of the issues co-written by Mindy Newell. I have read several of the issues solo written by George Perez at the very beginning of the run. Yeah. And they are rougher. Not yeah. <laughs> r- uh, they're not, they're not bad, but no. they are like, they're also just like straight up their own ass with the Greek God sure, stuff, you sure. know? And it's just like, but that, I mean, they were reintroducing Wonder Woman post-crisis. They were doing what they had to do. Um, this is just like really down to earth, like Wonder Woman on earth dealing with the problems of humanity. Not even, not even dealing with the problems of humanity. Wonder Woman being there to support, to lift up humanity when they are hurting. And this is not the first time that the, uh, these writers did a story like this. There was a character named Mindy that they reference in this issue who died of a drug overdose. Like they, they've, they did this sort of thing before um, because Vanessa mentions like how everybody dies. You oh, know, right, first right, right. dad, first dad, then Mindy. And now Lucy, I I'm, I'm very curious to read more of Mindy Newell's work. Yeah, especially I am too. Now that that's the thing. None of these women, some of these women are names that we recognize, but none of them are like truly household names. And it's a goddamn shame. And when we're saying like, okay, here's the creator that I think, you know, made the biggest, you know, dent in the industry or history, obviously it's not ranking them against each other, but I think you gotta say it's Marie Severin just on how much work she did, the time that she was working at Marvel, where she was like the... She was the only one. She was like the only woman working at Marvel at the time. <laughs> well, like, no, but she was maybe one of the only female, one of the only female creators. Right. And like Joe um, Duffy, I think has got to be right up there too, because she was so important to that Marvel bullpen that we love so much. And like, go back and read those. Like you said, Joe Duffy's all over them. And those guys celebrated the hell out of her. Well, but like Murray Severin ran so that, Joe Duffy could walk. Yeah. You know I mean? And that's why it, it's, that's why I'm just going back in history. And I'm saying I, to me, I think it's Marie Severin because like she really did pioneer female comic book art. It just, you didn't see a lot of it period. For me, it's I'm, I'm struggling between Marie Severin and Ramona Fraden because Ramona Fraden, like Marie Severin and uh, you know, Jill Thompson, you know, like these are names that, comic fans know sure not a lot of people are really in the know about ramona Fraden. no i don't hear a ton of people unless i know that they are seasoned comic book fans she's not really a figure that is celebrated currently in she she worked in the comic industry dc stuff too first issue special adventure let me let me rephrase that like it's not that she's not celebrated it's that she's not talked about. yeah we don't know she's not talked about like marie severin she's not talked about like jill thompson and i I only think it's because marie severin probably stuck around like on runs and did stuff where like frayden she's kind of all over the place like an issue of this an issue of that you know like she was definitely sort of like fill-in artist for a lot of the stuff she worked on but that doesn't make her any less talented her art is incredible i'm giving it to marie severin just because like she was at Marvel. She was hired by Marvel back when it was still known as Atlas. Yeah. And she, at first she was in the production department and then she eventually ended up at Marvel proper doing, um, you know, not brand and, and inking and coloring and all sorts of crazy stuff. Marie Severin left a huge impact on Marvel comics. Oh yeah. She was one of the as architects a publisher. of that like 
world outside your window, right? Like the Marvel comics that we love. She was right there. Yeah. Like I, I can't say that like she had huge lengthy runs on anything. Like she has drawn multiple issues of a lot of different things. Sure. But it's not like, you know, she wasn't the, she wasn't the artist of amazing Spider-Man for, you know, one through 50 or what, you know, nothing. She has got nothing like that under her belt, but the work she did and the people that she inspired and um, just like the artists and the look of this company, like Marie Severin was there to help build that. And yeah. I'm giving that to Marisa. I'm giving it to Marisa. Now that we're done with the reviews, we find ourselves rematerializing in the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, where we always keep a costume change because time travel makes you super sweaty for some reason. It's very messy. Yeah. It's so gross. Joe, let's slip into our sacred robes and tell these nerds about our must-read picks for next Wednesday, April 5th. My pick for next week is Hairball number one from Dark Horse Comics. It's $5.99. It's written by Matt Kint with art by Tyler and Hillary Jenkins. Now, I lumped them together as though they're a married couple. It could be that they are two completely separate Jenkinses. I don't really know. Cousins, and so if maybe. they are, I apologize. <laughs> yeah, you know. It's by Tyler Jenkins and Hillary Jenkins. There. And I'll tell you what, if there was ever a solicit that screamed Joe Patrick, it's this one. A brand new supernatural nightmare that's Junji Ito meets Hayao Miyazaki. That's, yeah. From the... Yeah, that's Joe Patrick wow. to a T. <laughs> it's from the Eisner-nominated creators of Fear Case and Apache Delivery Service. A young girl with a black cat begins to suspect the innocuous beast is behind all her troubles. Her parents fighting, family plagues, and innumerable supernatural horrors. As she tries her best to rid herself of this creature, she discovers that maybe the cat is not evil after all. And a greater terror may be behind these horrific events harming her life. Now, yeah, Junji Ito, no, I, that's I'm not that kind of I'm not that kind of guy. It's amazing. But, uh, look, I'm sure. Like I, you know what? I've read the whole. I read the comic about the holes. I get it. But if there's a new Flux House book, I'm reading it. Is this Flux House? Did they say Flux House? Yeah, they, it says Flux House okay. on the cover. Okay, good. It doesn't say it in the solicit. It does enough, but. It's on the cover. Like, I saw it on the cover. Okay, but like Dark Horse, if it's going to be a thing, make it a thing. Okay, guys? They don't do it. Uh, like, but, it, I mean, it's on the cover. I saw it with okay. my own two eyes. All right, all right. My pick for next week is Planet of the Apes, number one from Marvel. I knew it I knew it would be, and that's why I didn't feel bad about taking the new Matt Kent comic. It's $4.99. It's written by David Walker with art by David Wachter. The only reason I didn't take the Matt Kent comic was because you already did. I'll be honest. Look, do I want to read a good Planet of the Apes comic? Sure. Is there a lot of other stuff coming out next week that I'm super excited about? Eh. Nope. <laughs> yeah. uh, I didn't choose Planet of the Apes number one because I don't give a shit about Planet of the Apes. I love the Planet of the Apes movie. I knew that you did. Not so. the Tim Burton remake. <laughs> Here's your solicit. David F. Walker and David Wachter bring Planet of the Apes back to Marvel Comics in spectacular style. It's in all caps. So we got to scream it. A new era of apes kicks off. I'm sure they've never heard one. us say that before. Well, New listeners, Joe, we got to let everybody into the clubhouse. Come on. A new era of apes kicks off with part one of devolution. De-evolution. Sorry. The, <laughs> I like devolution. Yeah, that's actually a song by High and Fire. Totally rad band. Three virus has rampaged across planet Earth 
and humanity is crumbling, while well-meaning researchers hunt for a cure, a fanatical group of humans has their own solution. Kill all apes! Peacekeeper Juliana Tabone is one of the few willing to stand against them, but the crisis is spreading, and soon apes will witness the true depths of human cruelty! Eisner-winning writer David F. Walker, who worked on Luke Cage and Bitter Root, joins forces with artist Dave Wachter, who worked on Iron Fist, Heart of the Dragon, which looked very good, but was not great. Star Wars, The High Republic, Trail of Shadows, didn't read it, on one of the most beloved sci-fi franchises in history. This is launching the new Marvel Universal comics, which is where they're going to put all the movie stuff. It's going to be Predator, Alien, this, maybe more to come. We shall see. There's been a lot yeah, of uh, yeah, speculation uh, of diehard uh, comics and crap. <laughs> maybe like Universal Monsters <laughs> comics? Who knows? Who knows? But so look, this is like um, Rise of the Planet of the Apes kind of stuff. It's taking place this definitely. Is like not, this is not Charlton Heston Planet of the Apes. No, 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 no. This is taking place more modern day. It's going to be closer to the Rise of the Planet of the Apes. This is before the apes have taken over. I think we will get other comic series that look at the far future as well. But they're starting at the beginning and showing how it all took place, basically. The DHN must read trade for next week is Elixir. They say it's a trade paperback, but really, it's kind of a graphic novel, it seems like. It's from Dark Horse. It's 1999. It's written by Frank Barbieri and Ricky Mamone, with art by Victor Santos, who is so good. Here's your solicit. In a fantastic vision of the future, magic has been replaced with technology. Two factions are in conflict within a sprawling metropolis. The druids hold on to the past, while huge corporations exploit new technologies that threaten to eradicate magic forever. Mara, the daughter of a druid leader, becomes caught up in a dangerous mission to recover the elixir, a mysterious artifact that could restore magic and defeat the corporations once and for all. The only problem is, it's in the hands of her old mentor, a dangerous warrior who has mastered magic and the blade, and is driven by a personal vendetta to destroy the elixir at all costs. Pulled between her family and a choice that could shape the future forever, how far will Mara go to recover the elixir for herself? And what will she do with it? Matt Baum, your findings. Victor Santos is a total badass artist. I love Victor Santos. And this comic looks so cool. It's one of those like really limited color palettes, blues and grays and blacks. And his style yeah. is just so cartoony and rad. I love what he does. And I'm super excited for this. Victor Santos is the probably the main reason why I picked this, but also remember Frank Barbieri? Yeah. We loved that guy. What Where's he happened been? to that dude? He vanished. But he's out there making an elixir, I guess. Now that you know what we're picking up, let us know what you're reading over at our Discord in the new comics channel. And let us know if we're missing anything or if you'd like to hear us review something on the show. Excelsior! Oh. That's it for teaching 699. Next time, we're back reviewing new comics, and we'll give you a preview of our Patreon Extra. In the meantime, be sure to check out our Nerd News Update show. It hits your feed on Mondays. And join us for THN Cover to Cover Gang Hang on Saturdays at 11 o'clock Central. Check out our Discord for details on that. Joe Patrick, while they are at our Discord... What else can kids do? Have a question only a two-headed nerd can answer? Got a suggestion for the Cosmic Longbox? Or maybe even a hot take? 
sign up for our Discord with the link at twoheadednerd.com slash Discord, where we've got channels for all of our segments. Or you can call the THN hotline at 402-819-4894 and leave a message or send an MP3 to twoheadednerd at gmail.com and we'll put you on the show. If you're new to the show and you're sick of our mansplaining, I assure you it's only because you haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital longbox archive at twoheadednerd.com. THN is a listener-supported podcast, and it wouldn't be possible without the generosity of donors like longtime patron Cody Tetrick. If you like what you hear every week, it is easy to support the show just like Cody does. You can sign up to be a patron at patreon.com backslash twoheadednerd. Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to Hugo's dad and Slack Issues Super Crew team member John Tverdick, who celebrated a birthday this past Friday. Word on the street is... He is 78 years old, but he is an immortal being, so he still looks like he's about 28. Yeah, yeah, he just looks good. Old as hell. It's weird. Yeah. And his wife Where is you- so much younger. I mean, no judgment. Whatever. I mean, they kind of distressingly, <laughs> kind of distressingly so. Word to you, John. Thank you for all you do to contribute to the show and to the THN community. The dude is all over that Discord, and we thank him for it. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics. Your retailer might just slice them in half with his Native American samurai sword. This is the Two-Headed Nerd, signing off. All of my favorite samurai are Native Americans. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> yeah.